Good morning. <clears throat> you guys have to be with me in this this morning because, uh, <clears throat> yeah, don't leave me alone up here because I'm pretty uh, <clears throat> I'm pretty weak this morning. It's been a it's been a really hard week. Uh, it's funny though how 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 sorrow and joy are are kind of connected. Um, if you've ever met our drummer Ethan you might not realize that he's the funniest guy in the room. Like he, he seriously, he'll crack you up. He cracks me up all the time. We, we were in the green room earlier before service and he said this thing and I started laughing uncontrollably. I could not stop laughing. I was laughing to the point of tears and, and, uh, I thought that was funny because I feel so, I feel so, um, I feel so raw in my heart right now. And it's, I, I honestly, I don't like this place at all. It's the worst place in the world, but it's interesting how, how uh, you have access to so many other things that you close down when you're not in that place. And I, it, was, it, was, it was striking to me how, how joy and sorrow really are interconnected in some strange way. So <clears throat> um, Jesus says this in the book of John. He says, in the world, you will have what? Trouble. And um, he says that in the 16th chapter of John. And he's talking to his disciples, but obviously he's talking to everybody. He's talking to all of us. He's talking to us right now. It's, it's, a, it's a timely word for us in this moment. And, um, and Jesus, from the very beginning of his life, was familiar with trouble, like like. From the moment he came out of the womb, he was met with a in very intense resistance. And um, we, we've just finished the series through a lot of the Old Testament. And today we're, we're going to begin a series on the book of Matthew. And we're going to skip through the genealogy in, in Matthew chapter 1 and head on over to chapter 2 which begins with the arrival of the Magi who were looking for the Christ child. And uh, we had this planned out weeks ago, but I'm, I'm honestly, I'm always intrigued by the Holy Spirit, the way he builds his church. And because um, I've, I've been studying this passage for about three weeks now, and um, it just has become very poignant to me, especially this week. So we're always depending on the Holy Spirit to lead us, but it's, it's, it's cool when you can see his hand in a more direct way. Um, so one thing that we've been saying in our study of the Old Testament is that God's story is what? It's our story, right? And sometimes that can be a hard idea to grasp because sometimes we have a hard time relating to some of the actual things that happen in the stories that we read. They seem a little distant. They seem a little, uh, you know, far off. <clears throat> so what we're about to read in Matthew chapter two, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that probably almost none of us have ever lived through this particular instance or this type of a situation. But I would like to point out before I begin that there are people in the world right now who are doing the very thing 
that Mary and Joseph did when they were fleeing King Herod. They had to get out of their country. They had to get out of their bad circumstance to go look for another place that they could live. So we should take a closer look at this passage in Matthew 2. It is very much about our lives. And you've heard me talk about this before, but I want to say it again today. The riskiest, most precarious thing a person can do in their life is to actively practice hope. To actively believe God and his promises. If you are a practitioner of hope, you are in for a very hard and difficult life. Because oftentimes the reality that you are living in stands in contrast to and in fact in judgment of God's promises. The thing that you're existing in is different than the word that you got, the hope that you received, the promise that God spoke to you individually and spoke to us corporately. The circumstance defies what God has said, and that really is the hardest place to live, isn't it? The place where the reality of the world is not aligned with the reality of God's promise. But that is why we are here, and that is why we are doing this together. We are engaging together in the practice of a deep hope. And this is what we are counting on, that God is not done being God for us. In the world, you will have trouble. Of all the promises found in the Bible, this is the one that seems the most true the most often. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It's not really a, it's not really a promise. It's more of a description of the way things are here on earth. But it's not like the scriptures have been hiding this reality from us up until this point when Jesus makes this claim. In the world, you will have trouble. That wasn't a brand new thing. That had been happening since the beginning of time. People had been experiencing trouble. But when Jesus showed up on the scene, he brought hope with him. And he started infusing, injecting his people with hope. But he had to make sure that once they were infected even with this hope that would never die, they they wouldn't walk around with this idea that nothing troublesome would ever happen again. So he had to be clear. And he said, in the world, you will face things that you can't possibly understand. They're so difficult. You won't have the brain capacity to face them. So... We see the honesty of of tragedy played out in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 is a terrible study of contrast on the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. And it's so ironic that we finally get to the New Testament, to get to the place in God's story where the promised Messiah shows up on the scene, but he really arrives in the most disappointing way. You can't just read the story like it's nothing more than a Christmas tradition. It has too much spilled blood and sorrow for that. You have to read the story honestly because God saw fit to tell it honestly. He hasn't left out any of the gory details in order to preserve 
our rated PG hopes and sensibilities. Matthew opens up with the Christ child already born, and he's probably somewhere between the ages of one and two years old. And the wise men from the east, they're looking for him in order to worship him. And King Herod hears that these magi are looking for the king of the Jews. And he was disturbed by that. And he schemes and he attempts to get the Magi to reveal to him the location of the Christ child. But here's the thing. God warns the Magi in a dream of Herod's wicked plan to kill the child. So they avoid Herod and they go home by another route. And God's miraculous preservation of the Holy Family continues in another dream that Joseph had. God warns the Magi, don't tell Herod where the Christ child is. God shows up in Joseph's dream and says, get out of Bethlehem, go to Egypt. Because stuff's about to happen. If you've got your Bibles, let's read in Matthew chapter 2. I'm just going to read this passage right in the middle of the, the chapter, starting at verse 13. When the Magi had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet Jeremiah. Out of Egypt, I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So what an incredible and chilling chapter in God's story. Here we are witnesses to this great miracle of preservation and this terrible massacre of innocence in the span of five verses. What are we to do with this? God includes these parts of the story in his story, maybe not to comfort us, but to discomfort us. Clearly, we see that even at the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah into the world, the world is still greatly at odds with God's original plan for humanity. There is no version of the gospel that shows us Jesus arriving on the scene and setting everything Instantly in order. But we can see ourselves in this story if we look close enough. I imagine the mothers and fathers in Bethlehem who had their young sons torn out of their arms to be killed. There is no whitewashing that reality. It happened. And there are no words anywhere that could bring comfort to that situation. You can't take refuge in the idea that Mary, Joseph, and Jesus escaped. You can be glad about that, but you can't let that fact obscure the fact 
that there were a whole lot of people who went through hell on that night. It is right that Rachel refused to be comforted. What other option was there? I imagine what Mary and Joseph must have been going through, knowing that in the miracle of the salvation of their family, there were many more who were not preserved. This is one of the strangest realities of being a child of God. There will be times when you see someone else's miracle of preservation And it is of no comfort to you because the thing you're walking through, there is no comfort for. In fact, you could be walking through something so difficult that when you see someone else's miracle of deliverance, it not only doesn't bring you comfort, but it offends you. So I've actually been thinking about this for quite a while because I've, I've wrestled with being a person who believes in miracles and who prays for miracles and contends for miracles and contends to see the power of God. And I pray and I ask God for things. I'm that person but I'm always running into the moments where those expectations aren't revealed and those prayers aren't answered. And somehow I felt badly about that. And I thought that my options were, I either stop praying altogether, stop believing that God doesn't work that way, or I've had to come up with a different mode that the miracle of preservation and devastation can happen in the same five verses and that I have to keep praying. I have to keep contending. I have to keep believing because that thing's inside of me. That thing's inside of you. If you're a practitioner of hope, if you're somebody who's working out, walking out this deep Hope, you will come into instances where the prayer doesn't get answered. And you will have to decide where to go from there. But it's so helpful that the Bible is an honest story because it shows us how the early church existed in this reality in that we can't imagine that what we're going through is different than what they were going through. It's the same. It's so interesting in the book of Acts, we see this in, the, in, in chapter seven and eight, Stephen is being stoned. He, he's, he becomes the first martyr in the church. And all this guy did was distribute food to those in need. And he prayed for the sick and they were healed. That's all he did. And it was such an affront to those, the religious leaders in Jerusalem that they, They brought a false witness before him and they brought him into the court and they decided to kill him. And and Stephen dies and and the, the scripture says this great persecution breaks out against the church in Jerusalem. And it says that everybody except for the apostles scatter. And then it says that godly men buried their friend Stephen 
and mourned deeply. These were not people disconnected with the reality of loss. They weren't super saints that were just walking around doing miracles, disconnected from their hearts in the way that they could see their friend die and not weep over it. The scripture says they mourned deeply as, and, and they buried their friend Stephen. But what's so interesting about this, this story in Acts chapter 8 is it says this, and then Philip went down to Samaria and proclaimed Christ. And the crowd saw the miraculous signs he did. They paid close attention to what he said. And with shrieks, evil spirits came out of many and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. We go from deep mourning to great joy in three verses. They're connected church. These men and women of God, they weren't afraid of their sadness. They weren't afraid of their mourning. And they did not let it hold them back for proclaiming the gospel of God. Don't you know that Philip was in that crowd watching Stephen get stoned? I guarantee you this. It doesn't say this in the scripture. But I promise you those believers were throwing up prayers for the salvation of of Stephen at that moment. And their prayer didn't get answered. And Philip goes to Samaria and begins working signs and wonders and preaching the Christ. Here again, we see the disastrous and the miraculous going hand in hand from heartbreak to joy in the matter of verses, real heartbreak and real joy. And then again in Acts chapter 12, this is a passage that always struck me. We see tragedy and we see miracle in the same place again. So King Herod, this is a different King Herod who's in charge now, but he's, he's mad at the church. So what he does is he, he starts rounding up the apostles and it says that he takes James and I forget who the other guy was, but he takes James and another apostle and he arrests them. And it says that he kills James by the sword. And then seeing that this pleased the Jews, he goes and arrests Peter and he's getting ready to kill Peter too. And the scripture says this, that the church began to pray. The church began to pray. And that's the story when the angel shows up in Peter's jail cell and, and unlocks the, the chains and, and Peter walks straight out of prison. And he goes and knocks on the door of the local church and they can't believe it's him. They think it's a ghost. But I think about how James's family must have felt at the news of Pericles' miracle of escape. I think it would be hard to digest to lose the one you love in that way and to have your prayers of deliverance go unanswered. It might make you ask some questions as to how all this faith stuff actually works. Anybody been there before? So I imagine Mary at the news of Herod's massacre of the innocents, weeping and grieving while holding God in her arms. Imagine that. Imagine holding God, the God of the universe in your arms and witnessing a slaughter like that. You would grieve. There is such a thing as weeping and grieving in the presence of God. I imagine Stephen's friends burying him, mourning deeply as they put their friend's body into the ground. Philip was there. 
What was inside him that made him continue on? What did he know? I think he saw Stephen about to be stoned and prayed, God, deliver my brother. And then he watched as Stephen was unjustly executed. But he went down to Samaria and began to do miracles. Why did he go on? Why did he keep releasing God's gospel? He must have known something. He must have had something on the inside of him that would not let him give up. I imagine James' family hearing of the miracle of Peter's escape from jail, being confounded, finding themselves in a place of not understanding. Here's the thing. In this life, it is highly probable that you will encounter more that you do not understand than you do understand. You may not like not understanding, but that is the normal experience of being a human being. And becoming a Christian does not excuse you from that. But here's the thing. You don't have to have understanding to be a practitioner of hope. You don't have to have understanding in order to release that river of worship out of your heart. You don't have to have understanding to trust God that he is not done being God for you and for me. You don't have to have understanding to hold up your brother who cannot hold himself up. You do not have to have understanding to carry your sister who cannot carry herself. There is really, there is so much you can do without having any understanding at all. In fact, if you're waiting to have understanding before you walk out in faith, you will never go there. There is always going to be some mystery involved in following Jesus. And Jesus said, you're going to have trouble too. This is the most amazing thing. You can be totally devoid of understanding and still be with God. You can know nothing about anything or everything that's going around you. You can be unsure of your emotions, your feelings, your mind, and you can still be smack dab in the center of the Lord's presence. Your understanding is not your way into knowing God. He is here with us. He is here. He is here now. In the world, we will have trouble, but God is not done being God to us. Is everybody okay? I asked Amy if I could share this this little thing that I have, but I've got this thing. It's it's forever burned in my brain. But um, 
it's, it's really interesting. I'm 44. I guess that's smack dab in the middle, middle ages. I'm, I'm, I'm planning to live to 120. So I guess that still makes me on the lower side of middle age, but, um, I feel like I've lost big enough times now that I have developed some muscles that I didn't have when I was younger when it comes to enduring suffering and enduring pain. It, it, it's like you do it enough times and, you, and uh, I, I, it's really unexplainable. I don't know how to explain it. I don't know how I got that way, but but there is something to walking through this a few times in your life. If you've never experienced loss before and you find yourself mourning, you don't necessarily know how to do it. But Amy and I have done it enough times that I think we've gotten kind of good at it. That sounds weird, but it's just the case. But last year, when Amy lost her dad, it was it was it was so suddenly it was so out of nowhere it, it took our breath it was it was totally unexpected it was it just was a jolt to our system and and she was in California with her mom and family for a few months and and she came back to North Carolina and still in the middle of all of her grief and all of her mourning and when somebody is in mourning and and some someone's in grief you you really want to walk gently around folks like that. You don't need to have answers for people. You don't need to have, you probably don't have the wisdom for that person at that time. If you want to do anything for a person who's in, in that space, just sit with them and be available. So I was kind of trying to be that for my wife, but On occasion, I would walk past our bed, our bedroom, and and she would be lying on her bed, and she would have her little iPhone or a speaker playing this Anthony Skinner song that we used to always listen to called "I Will Be All Right." And she would just lay on her bed, and she would have that song playing, and she would just be weeping and crying and calling out to the Lord and. <clears throat> And she would just be on her bed, not understanding. And she was carrying so much sadness and she would just sing out to God. And it it will make you tremble to witness someone glorifying God in the middle of grief. It's such a, it's really, it's, it's a holy thing to behold. It's just, but I realized this thing Later on, here's my wife, this person that I love, laying there on a bed of not understanding. And it's the deepest, richest worship that a person can ever give to the Lord on the earth. And I want to say this to you, church, that that is what it looks like to practice hope. That is what it looks like to become a practitioner of resurrection power. 
That is what it looks like to be the mighty on the earth. You make a mistake to think that you might have to have all the answers or you have to have your theology in perfect alignment or you have to understand everything that you believe or that you have to have an answer for everybody all the time, but you don't have to have any of that. You just have to bring your not understanding to the Lord and you give it to him. And I'm telling you that will change the world. That will change your heart. That will change your family. That will change the community that you live in. I, you know, I've, I've, got this, I've got this theory about what the Lord is teaching the global church. He's really leading us and teaching us how to be weak. That's so uncomfortable for us, guys. I mean, we, for the last 30 years in the American church, we have been working how to be slick and powerful. And we've been running up against this ceiling and that ceiling has just been the grace of the Holy Spirit. And he's just like, yeah, I'm not gonna let you build that altar any longer. I'm gonna teach you how to be a people that will walk close with me and you won't have it all together and your life won't look perfect. And he's saying, believe me, welcome to the family. How silly is it that our praise is how we fight the battle? That's ridiculous. In the words of Will Ferrell, that's ridiculous. No, truly, church. Like, how, how ridiculous is it that a church that comes face to face with death would choose to stand and confess that God is good and that he will never let us down? You know why? Because we're playing the long game. We're playing the long game, church. We might lose some of the battles, but I'm telling you, we are going to win. That resurrection power that resides on the inside of you, man, that thing is coming out. You might not have felt it lately, but you were born to live connected to that thing. God designed you before the creation of the universe to walk with that power on the inside of you. And you might not be walking around having paralytics come out of their beds, but I'm telling you, you are changing the course of the path that you're walking on. When you choose to walk weak hand in hand with Jesus through this world, And there's going to be a lot of people that try to talk you out of that. Guys, that's why we need each other. That's why we need each other to speak the truth to each other. Because there's a lot of, there's a lot of voices out there that are trying to talk us out of this. You know what I'm talking about? There's a lot of stuff coming against us. But I just believe this. The Lord's, the Lord is, He's calling us to lean into Him. He's calling us to lean into him because he's leaning into us. Can you feel that this morning? Can you feel the Lord leaning into you this morning? I hope you can feel that. 
I always like a message that you don't know how to land. I always like that. Like, to me, those are the best messages. It's like, it's like running a train into a brick wall. Like, oh, now's the time when we stop. All right. I heard this song this week. Michael W. Smith, of all people, like, I pride myself on being Mr. Cool Music Guy, but Michael W. Smith rocked my world this week. Mr. Contemporary Christian Music himself. I got this video sent to me of him singing this song. I'm telling you, it messed me up so bad. It messed me up so bad. I was, I was like, oh, I know that is a song for the church. Not just this church, but the global church. This is our cry. And, and then I found out this song just came out of a little house of prayer in Dallas. There's a video of some little girl singing on a stage. This is how I fight my battles. Oh, it may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. us he's teaching us how to follow him without having to have all the words make sense he's teaching us how to follow him before we got the math worked out I think we should just sing this together who wants to sing this with me let's do this